Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. Over the past few years, policymakers and public audiences have begun devoting more attention to the ways in which powerful, anti-liberal actors are exploiting technology-driven changes to today's information landscape. In this episode, we'll explore how authoritarian governments are devoting immense resources to improving their capacity in this arena as a means both to consolidate power at home and project influence far beyond their borders. Although authoritarian regimes the world over are adopting such approaches, two stand out as leaders. The Russian and Chinese authorities alike have used new communications technologies to deepen their ability to manipulate the public discussion. Using these technologies, both have emerged as important incubators for the development of modern forms of censorship. For its part, the Chinese party state is on the leading edge of this effort to deepen control, moving with great speed and no meaningful checks on its ambitions to implement a comprehensive apparatus for policing political discourse. In the democracies, at least until now, there's largely been a failure of imagination to recognize the growing global implications of the rapidly advancing digital prowess of the authoritarians. Many analysts have covered these trends from the perspectives of national security and economic competition, but relatively few have considered the implications for human rights and political freedom. For this reason, we're delighted to welcome to the show one such expert who has been very thoughtful in this regard, Alina Polyakova, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow for Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution, here to discuss digital authoritarianism. And Alina, I'd like to start alluding to an article you wrote last November uh, on Russia and its ambitions in the technology sphere and AI in particular. You noted that um, there may be some real obstacles to Russia developing its, its abilities in the tech sphere, among other reasons, as a result of the public corruption, poor rule of law, and an oppressive uh, regulatory environment. Um, how should we see this? Will they be limited in pursuing their objectives to, to curb dissent, or will they simply invest in what they think is most important and therefore make real advances? Well, thank you for that question, Chris, and thank you, uh, Shanti, for uh, hosting me on this fantastic podcast today. So speaking directly to your question, Chris, about Russian future capabilities in the new and emerging technology space, I think what becomes quite obvious is Russia looks like it's 10 feet tall, but it's not. And what I mean by that is you know, the Russian economy is about the size of Spain's. For a country that size, is a huge disparity. It's not really projected to grow economically. Foreign direct investment is not likely to increase because of some of the factors you mentioned, and the difficulty of doing business, the public corruption, et cetera. In terms of AI startups, uh, Russia really lags behind the rest of the world. Um, and if we you know, just anecdotally go to Silicon Valley, most of us find there's a lot of Russian speakers there. And there's a reason for that, because people that have great skills, and many, many Russians do have very good technical skills, can find work elsewhere. So I think for a variety of those reasons, we can expect that Russia will continue to fall behind, especially countries like China. And when that comes to the government's own desire to emulate what the Chinese have been doing, certainly in terms of social surveillance and 
digital authoritarianism at home, they are already deeply, deeply limited. They've been doing certain things on an ad hoc basis, not like the Chinese. They have not been able to be as strategic. Um, so as a result, what they're able to do is not so much filter information, meaning this is what the Chinese do. Uh, they're able to censor information before the population is even able to see it. In the Russian case, they're not capable of doing this because they lack the ability to process that much data. But what they are increasingly doing is monitoring and surveilling uh, what citizens are talking about online, what they're texting to each other over the phone. And they're doing this through a variety of intimidation means, including uh, quite a uh, intimidating, repressive legal structure that's been slowly forming under President Putin. And I, I think in that respect, it seems that um, while China is operating maybe at a unique level in this space, and perhaps it isn't um, quite the right frame of reference for for Russia's ambitions. When one looks uh, from the point of view, say, of 10 years ago of some of the things that uh, Russia has done, despite the fact it's been under sanctions and it's had a weak economy and it has all the features that you described, it's actually proven to be quite active internationally. And so should we underestimate, uh, given the fact that this, the authorities in Russia, which really have no meaningful checks on their decision-making, um, that they won't be purposeful in investing the limited resources they have in areas they think are most important. I mean, that, that's exactly the key point. Uh, you know, just because they have certain constraints and limitations, many of those being financial resources, when we think about the, the Kremlin's strategic intent abroad, uh, again, this is where Russia differs from China. Uh, Russia's strategic intent, the government's strategic intent, is to try to undermine uh, any countries it sees as potential competitors. And of course, from the Kremlin's perspective, that is the democratic West, first and foremost. And so we've seen Russia, again, unlike China, use some of these new technologies, new tools to try to undermine Western democracies. And why are they doing this? Well, again, it makes perfect sense from their perspective. If you're a country that has limited resources, um, but you see yourself so slipping and falling behind, you'll do what you can that is most low cost and high impact to try to stay ahead or at least catch up or at least push everybody else down just a little bit. So if we look into the future, what I expect and what my research has been suggesting is that we're going to see the Kremlin investing more and more of its limited resources specifically into these asymmetric threats, meaning uh, using AI-driven technologies as a form of foreign influence operations. You know, uh, just to pick up on this, uh, so much of the current conversation has been around China and its artificial intelligence capabilities. But you've written that artificial intelligence has the potential to hyperpower Russia's use of disinformation, referring to the intentional spread of false and misleading information for the purpose of influencing politics. And you also say that democracies are ill-equipped to respond to this. Can you elaborate what you mean on both points? So at this point, I think many people are aware of the term deep fakes, um, but this term is relatively new. And I, I do want to talk a little bit about what that is, because that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about AI-powered disinformation. So of course, AI is a neutral tool, you could say. It's a dual-use tool. Um, and it's multi-layer. We say artificial intelligence, we're actually referring to a whole suite of various technologies that will have both positive and negative consequences for our societies, basically in every single sector. Uh, but I think it's really important to understand how this new technology and the suite 
of new tools will also be used you know, for mali- by malicious actors um, to try to pursue uh, the kind of disruptive foreign policy agenda the Russians have been pursuing for some time. So specifically um, when it comes to Russia's use of AI and deep fakes, you know, deep fakes are manipulated audio and video content, but they're not like Photoshop, right? People often say, well, you know, we've had manipulation of images for a long time. We've had people doctoring pictures of Photoshop, doctoring videos in various other ways. But right now, those, those kinds of manipulations are very easy to detect. You know, we have software that can do that. Uh, we have some artificial intelligence tools that can do that very quickly. Deepfakes are a whole new level of audio, video, and image manipulation. They are, they are generated, which means it's not manipulated. You're not taking an existing image and then doctoring. You're actually producing a brand new image, brand new audio, brand new video, based on a ton of data uh, that these new artificial intelligence algorithms can process very, very quickly. And currently, you know, we don't have the technical response, meaning we're not able to detect the, this kind of video audio manipulation. If you think about what that might mean for disinformation, um, I think the implications are quite profound. Uh, you know, we can see a video of a world leader making offensive remarks, for example, uh, and that could spread virally on Twitter and social media, all the other platforms. And we can debunk him because say, no, you know, uh, President Trump didn't say that, or Chancellor Merkel didn't say that. But the damage is usually done because it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. And I think this is the new challenge that we're going to face increasingly um, over the next two to three years. And one thing that you've written about, which I think is quite fascinating, is you've you've highlighted the fact that uh, the Kremlin has focused its efforts already over the past many years on a tactic of um, Maskarovka, and um, that this is something that has predated the machine learning era. Could you talk a little bit about this concept and why you think that this will be dramatically enhanced by machine learning? So, thanks, Shanti, for bringing some Russian into the conversation. I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering it. <laughs> no, no, that was great. Uh, so the term you use, maskirovka, um, it loosely translating to English, uh, basically refers to tactics of military deceit. So this was something that uh, was often used was often used in the Soviet era. Um, so, for example, you try to sort of ruse your enemy to make them think that your forces are in one place, or in fact they're in another place. It can take the form of things like actually making fake blow-up tanks, uh, airplanes, missiles, so that from satellite images. Uh, your adversaries might see that you have a tank in one location, but that's actually uh, a false, you know, misleading, purposely misleading um, way of trying to deceive. So these are old tools, old tactics that have been around for a very long time to try to kind of destabilize your enemy's position and mislead them in various ways. Um, but the the new digital tools that we're discussing are actually in the 21st century version of that. Uh, what I mean by that is when you see and just some of the Russian disinformation campaigns that we've seen already, uh, you saw Russian trolls uh, masquerading as Americans, as Europeans, operating many accounts, uh, setting up these bot networks on Twitter to try to amplify false content to mis- exactly to mislead and deceive people. And what we see in Russia is, in fact, it is the Russian Ministry of Defense that has taken the lead 
on artificial intelligence capabilities and development. Um, so squarely, uh, the Russian government sees this very much as part of its military arsenal. And I think that's important to understand that from the Russian perspective, you know, things like disinformation, new forms of information warfare, AI-powered information warfare is part and parcel of its broader military strategy that goes very much in line with this long tradition of trying to deceive your enemy, mislead your enemy, misguide your enemy in various ways. And you've you've raised how these um, approaches and methodologies have been developed at the domestic level. I mean, one of the wrinkles that we're confronting in an era of globalization and where our uh, political speech and political discourse is now uh, integrated so seamlessly, especially through the open platforms that have emerged um, from the West Coast of the United States and in other settings. Um, And this is where this activity that you just described is happening. So could you talk a little bit about how these domestically developed um, capabilities through trial and error, experimentation, by incubating them, have now been diffused beyond Russia's borders. It seems just about everywhere now. Well, that's right. Again, you know, from the Russian perspective, there's also a business component here. I, I do want to make that clear. So now we see a lot of companies that look like PR firms. A lot of them happen to be Russian, but you can go online, look this up. I don't really want to advertise them. Um, but you can actually buy, you know, 100,000 Twitter accounts, uh, you know, 20 verified Facebook accounts. You can buy uh, Gmail accounts with two-step verification included. Um, they'll even give you the age of the accounts. A lot of these companies will try to take over uh, old accounts that have been abandoned and then, you know, sort of zombify them, if you will, and turn them towards a different purpose. And they'll tell you, you know, this account is one year old, this account is five years old, so it's quite sophisticated. Um, but the, the point is that it's very cheap. So what we see now is that from the Russian trial and error of trying to influence and manipulate democracy, especially around elections, but not just around elections, you know, we see others learning from this. Uh, you know, we see countries like Iran, perhaps, like North Korea. Um, you know, certainly China, I think, at some point will enter this um, space as well. You know, any aspiring authoritarian can basically buy a package now of, you know, however many bots on Twitter, however many trolls and accounts and pages on Facebook, and launch their own influence disinformation campaign, whether they be aimed at the domestic audience or the foreign audience. So we see this kind of package of information manipulation tools now uh, diffusing across the world. And and I do want to highlight one other thing that we're talking about, kind of the export of digital authoritarianism from, from countries like Russia. You know, one thing that we were talking about earlier, this notion that the Russians, you know, are falling behind, they have certain limitations and constraints in their resources, that's all true. But if we look at the world, you know, there's no other country that looks like China, right? A very fast-growing, wealthy, incredibly technically capable authoritarian regime. But there are many countries that look a little bit like Russia in some sense, resource poor, um, not very centralized, run more like a kleptocracy than you know a hard totalitarian dictatorship. And what that signals is that the technologies that Russia has developed for its own specific purposes at home, some of these monitoring technologies, are actually much more compatible with the rest of the aspiring authoritarians who face similar constraints as the Russians do. So I think for that reason, there's a big market for the Russians to export these surveillance tools because they are cheaper, 
because they have higher impact, and frankly, because most countries aren't China. You mentioned earlier that um, we don't have the technological response to some of these emerging technologies, including um, deep fakes in the artificial intelligence context. But it also seems like we don't have the the norms and the accountability to deal with this. So even if we were to develop the technical response, how would we get to the point, say, in the democracies to know how to use these, what the boundaries are? Because it seems to me, at least, maybe you can speak to this, Alina, that right now the the discussion around AI and how it's applied is either coming from the military side or from the commercial side, which is really driving the development of AI. But there's very little talk, at least relatively speaking, in terms of the norms that should shape the use of, of these new technologies. That's right. I mean, this should be of high priority to certainly European countries, to the United States as well. It took the United States a long time to publish um, our AI strategy, and it's mostly still in the military space, uh, not in the space of kind of ethics and norms and rules. But, you know, we, we are falling behind in that. So unless democracies are able to get a grip meaning that we need to come to the table and come up with a common set of norms and practices around the specific issue, around tech use, um, around uh, technological exports especially, and imports. And the U.S. is now uh, very aggressively trying to push back against uh, the use of Huawei technology, for example. But many Europeans already adopt a lot of this technology, and so it's going to come at a great cost for them to roll that back. But I think we have been asleep at the wheel for a very long time. And now it's going to be much, much harder to roll back the incursions that some of these authoritarian regimes have made into our democracies through what look like legitimate you know, technology sales. But we have to keep in mind that technology sales from authoritarian dictatorial regimes always come with strings attached. So in that vein, you know, if we're trying to think about weaknesses in the authoritarian strategy. I was intrigued by uh, your example of Telegram and how the Russian authorities were not able to successfully manage that. Um, And I'm wondering if there are any lessons from that, either about approaches to the private sector or ways that companies can play a role that might be applicable outside of Russia's borders. But do you think that you could briefly describe what happened with Telegram? And then if you think there's anything to be learned from that? This is a really fascinating example. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up. So for the listeners that may not be aware, Telegram is one of these uh, private messaging apps that's uh, highly encrypted. So it's similar to Signal or, uh, or WhatsApp. Um, and it was uh, designed and made by a Russian entrepreneur. Um, and in a normal government, um, a democratic government, that, that values entrepreneurship, this should be lauded as a great achievement. You know, that you have a successful tech company that is used by uh, lots of people around the world. But of course, in the Russian context, this is seen as a threat to the regime because it allows people to communicate and set up uh, channels or groups uh, to, to share information that's not official or controlled information. And when the Russian intelligence services, the FSB, um, tried to enforce a Russian law that actually forces all companies that have operations within Russia to allow access uh, to their encrypted channels. So they had to basically provide the encryption keys so that the Russian FSB services would be able to monitor and track communications on Telegram. Obviously, if Telegram were to do that, 
it would lose all legitimacy. People probably not use it anymore. So for them, this was an ex existential question. And they fought it tooth and nail, meaning that they refused to do this. And they found various workarounds uh, to try to route their data in various other ways. What the Russian government did was a complete embarrassment. They responded by trying to shut down millions of IP addresses and that were not related to Telegram, but related to other cloud services like an Amazon, um, other um, large uh, sort of data holding uh, companies. And they end up actually you know, screwing over their own banking sector, for example. So people's online banking broke down. People couldn't get on Amazon. They couldn't do their online shopping. Um, you know, it was huge effects across the economy. And it was a huge embarrassment to the government. And I think that what that clearly signals is that in countries like Russia that have not kept up with imposing these repressive rules and uh, practices, as the internet was developing, as these new technologies were developing, now they're also not well prepared to bring it all, to put it all back in the box, right? And so this fight with Telegram, I think, was really instructive because I think it exposed some of the um, uncoordinated, um, kind of ad hoc, botched incompetence of the regime. And again, this is why I started the conversation saying, if you look at what's happening in Russia domestically, you quickly see that. Uh, the government is not 10 feet tall because they're not even capable of dealing with a relatively small company. What that tells us is that in countries that are quite controlled um, and authoritarian like Russia, there is still space for entrepreneurial companies, especially for the tech sector, um, to use its own levers, its own leverage against the government, against these repressive norms as a way to expose what they're capable or not capable of doing. Um, I think other companies, uh, a lot of Western companies, have been complicit in this. Um, they've signed up to these repressive rules. Um, they've conformed to the Russian government's demands. They um, installed these so-called black boxes that allow the FSB to monitor activities um, from their servers. They signed up for it. the same with China. China is a huge market. So we need to be much more aware of how our own Western tech companies are complicit in facilitating this growing digital authoritarian regime in Russia and in China. And I think implicit in your response is that um, we have largely perceived this degree of integration between authoritarian regimes and democracies as working, well, according to our revamped view now in the democracies, as working against the democracies. But to some extent, if there were some realization of this, and if companies decided to think collectively about how to work against this, there is a degree of leverage to be had from that integration. Absolutely. Um, you know, the entire world is increasingly more connected in a digital space. And it's not governments that control that space for the most part. It is private companies. Um, and as a result, um, because individuals want the, the new phones, they want the new apps, they want Google and you know, Facebook and whatever else. There's a lot that these companies can and should be doing, I think, that is in line with democratic values and principles. And that for too long, um, we've let these big firms off the hook because I think we in the United States have been too afraid uh, to mandate, to legislate regulatory practices, to force these companies to come to terms with the fact that they're not just uh, being used for good. They are being used for evil as well. I mean, we have to be very clear about the morals and principles 
of democratic societies because these are the morals and principles that are deeply under threat. And the private sector has a huge role to play in this, and they have a great deal of leverage, I would even argue more than many governments, and they need to start stepping up. I think you've touched on an issue that's so central, Alina, which is on the one hand, in the norm-setting realm, the governments in Beijing and Moscow and Riyadh and elsewhere, they're very purposeful about what they'd like to see evolve in the online space in terms of um, the way it's thought of, in terms of this idea such as internet sovereignty, whereas the democracies, for a host of reasons, some of them quite understandable, they don't have the same unitary uh, approach to these things, haven't quite figured out how to defend their interests when it comes to things as basic as norms of uh, freedom of expression. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of decades is a, a slow erosion of that because the um, less free countries have been more um, mindful and purposeful in what they're trying to achieve. And so if you were to identify um, one or two things that would be most useful to set the wheels in motion in the, de in the democracies in a more practical way to start um, a more meaningful defense of these sorts of standards and values, what comes to mind? Well, you know, one thing that uh, I discussed in another paper um, with a, a colleague, Ambassador Daniel Freed, called Democratic Defense Against Disinformation, just putting a plug out there, um, is this notion that first and foremost, democracies, and we can start with Europe and the United States, but of course it should be expanded to global uh, democratic countries, um, need to come to the table and come up with, again, start coming with a set of norms and principles. And it shouldn't just be governments involved in this, because th this is not a problem that's going to be solved just by policy alone. Um, it may sound like a cliche, but this is a whole of society question. And what that means is that you have to bring the, the, the social media and tech companies to the table. You have to have civil society at the table, exactly because uh, what you mentioned, Chris, that democracies don't work in a top-down way. That's how the authoritarians work. Democracies work best from bottom up, and that often means we're slower, but that often also means that we're in the long term more resilient. And so we need to start thinking about it in this whole of society um, kind of mentality. And one thing that we propose in the paper I mentioned is at least in the information space, we can start there because most people have an everyday experience with that through their social media, that we should think about setting up a counter disinformation coalition that could look a lot like the counter ISIS coalition, for example, because the threat is that serious. Um, it may seem less urgent than the threat of ISIS, of course, um, but in the long term, it can have much more dire consequences than the very core of our democratic societies. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Alina, what's on your list? Well, if I may, I have two things I'm reading. One is a very nerdy but very good recommendation um, it is a report that recently came out um, called a Strategic Multilayer Assessment. I know that sounds kind of terrible, but it's a, I really highly recommend it. It's a multi-author report um, on AI, China, Russia, and the global order. 
technological, political, global, and creative perspectives. It's available online. And I think for any of those in the expert communities, absolute must read, especially if you're interested in Russia, China, and, and the shift in the competitive world order. The other thing I just picked up um, is a book explicitly on Russia uh, by one of my colleagues from Brookings, um, Angela Stent, and it's called Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Great. Um, and for my part, I'm a, a little late to the game on this report, but I've really been enjoying going through the Freedom House Freedom on the Net 2018 report, which is appropriately titled The Rise of Digital Authoritarianism. And of course, many of the points that it raises really resonate very much with the conversation we've just had. So apart from pointing out that global internet freedom declined for the eighth consecutive year in 2018, it also emphasizes that securing the modern information environment against the rise of digital authoritarianism is actually fundamental to protecting democracy as a whole. And it says that if democracy is to survive the digital age, technology companies, governments, and civil society must work together to find solutions to these problems, which, again, I think, Alina, you made that point very well just now in our conversation. And I've gone back to read Mansur Olson's classic book, The Logic of Collective Action, which was first published more than 50 years ago. He shrewdly dissects the considerable obstacles groups face to achieving collective action. Uh, Shanti alluded to the challenges in the tech sector that are there. And I think um, in the most recent past, we've seen this discussion in the university context in uh, the democracies. And I think it shows the, um, on the one hand, how hard it is for groups with uh, disparate interests to achieve collective action, but how necessary it is today. And so I found it very useful in provoking some uh, thinking and figuring out how uh, we might approach these things in a more unified way to defend our interests and values. Well, that's all we have for today. But let me thank Alina, our guest, for being such a terrific conversation partner and for really doing such a great job of explaining what are some pretty technical concepts and putting them in a, in a framework that's, that's easily understandable. So thanks for a great conversation today. Thank you, Shanti. And thank you, Chris. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, please see Alina's forthcoming report, Exporting Digital Authoritarianism how Russia and China are weaponizing emerging technologies, available soon from the Brookings Institution website. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, where you can find several posts devoted to how authoritarians are influencing the development of artificial intelligence, big data, social media, and other new technologies. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalethal with Chris Walker and Alina Polyakova. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on digital authoritarianism and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.